Our Father, again, we thank you for the reminder of how you work in amazing ways. That there is no such thing, Lord, as an unwanted child to you. I thank you, Father, for every amazing story of compassion expressed in such a way that a life is affirmed, a life is loved, a life is valued, a life is helped by those who seek to, with some measure of good, Lord, try to respond to the evil in our world. We thank you, Father, again, for raising up ministries that are seeking to try to offer compassionate care. We pray, Father, that you, we as your people, that we might be involved in some measure of compassion and care and encouragement to those around us. Lord, help us not to take all of our blessings and hoard them to ourselves. Help make us a blessing to somebody, Lord, some child, somebody who's in need, that we might be your agents of blessing. And now, Lord, we pray as we look into your word that you might open our eyes to see the blessings that are ours in Christ and you would help us to live those out in the context of our community here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not over yet, so hold on. Put your seatbelts on. I just want you to uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of John, John chapter 1, page 1259. We're going to start there, but we're really going to go to a number of texts today. We're going to continue having affirmed the value of life. Now we're going to talk about the value of our spiritual life and the value of family life within the body of Christ. We're looking at the purpose and the mission of our church. It's on the back of your sermon notes. There are notes in your bulletin if you're not familiar with how that works, but on the back of one of those inserts, you'll find the the mission of our church. It is to glorify God by making disciples who treasure live out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this will never be achieved. We will never see that accomplished and actually bring bring to pass unless the core value number three is being lived out in our church. And that is we value gospel-centered relationships and unity in the body of Christ. And this morning I want us to consider an essential element of the gospel, which has a direct bearing on how we treat, how we view, how we value our fellow believers in this local church. And the doctrine I want us to consider is to unpack a little bit this morning this, this doctrine of spiritual adoption. And I'm going to answer the questions very quickly, some of them more quickly than others, but what are some of the wondrous realities of spiritual adoption? Number two, what are some of the blessings of spiritual adoption? And number three, what are some of the practical implications of spiritual adoption? So I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to answer the first question now. What are some of the wondrous realities of spiritual adoption? And we come to this stunning statement in the prologue of John's Gospel, the opening of the book, chapter 1, verse 11. We read this. Jesus came to his own people, meaning the Jewish people, and those who were his own people did not receive him. They did not embrace him as their Messiah. But as many as received Jesus the Messiah, to them he gave the right, he gave the authority to become, what? Children of God. I don't think that that has an impact on us, which I think it would have in the first reading of that in the audience there in the first century, have the right to become a children of God, even to those who believe 
in his name. People who are born not of blood, you don't have to have a, 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 some sort of ancestry that goes back to Abraham. It's not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but it's born of God. Those who are born of God become a child of God. That is a huge blessing. Now, when we talk about being born of God, we're talking about regeneration. When we talk about adoption, we're talking about something else. So regeneration and adoption are not the same spiritual realities. I have a quote there in your notes. The pastor of the Puritan pastor, Stephen Charnock, he summarized this by saying, adoption gives us the privilege of sons. Regeneration gives us the nature of sonship. It changes actually our nature. Now, another helpful distinction that I'd like to make between adoption is to make it clear that when we refer to adoption, we're not just, it's not an equals, uh, this whole concept of theological concept of justification to be declared right with God. And I've got a quote in your notes there from this very helpful book, Knowing God. If you've never read it, it's, a very, it's worth your time to read through that. It's, it's uh, got a lot of wonderful truths in there. And I reread this chapter on being sons of God. And Packer says this, Justification is a forensic or a legal idea conceived in terms of law. God as judge declares penitent believers that they are not now, and they never will be, liable to the death their sins deserve. Why? Because Jesus Christ is their substitute and sacrifice tasted death in their place on the cross. To be justified is to receive a free gift, a gift of acquittal, a gift of peace with God, and the promise that a believer is fully forgiven and will never be condemned. What a wonderful privilege that is. But notice what he says. Adoption, however, is a family idea. It is conceived in terms of love and viewing God as our Father. In spiritual adoption, God takes us into his family, into his fellowship, and establishes us as his children and his heirs. He goes on to write then, uh, the quote there by Packer is, The highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher than even justification, is the idea of adoption. That is something I think we miss. So many times, those of us who've come from the the Protestant side of things and the Protestant Reformation, we sometimes don't go the full extent of understanding the blessings that are ours in Christ if we don't emphasize adoption. Most Most of us, I sure, would agree that if we would know it would be a relief if we were accused of a crime, guilty of a crime, we're standing for a judge, and there we stand before this judge, and he says to me, listen, I'm going to have my son is going to pay the penalty you owe. He'll do it in your behalf as a substitute. You're like, wow, that is taking a big burden and concern off my heart and mind. But wouldn't it be even more amazing if the judge says, not only is he going to do that and have his son pay the debt you owe to society, but then if the judge says, and matter of fact, since you are in such a desperate situation, I'm going to adopt you and make you my own son. I'm going to have you live in my home. You're going to eat at my table. I'm going to take care of you and make sure all your needs are met. You'll be mine. I'm going to love you forever. Think of that. All of God's adopted children are promised and provided the same level of love that is enjoyed by Jesus with his Father and the Holy Spirit with the Father and with Christ. That is the same level of love we enjoy as a child of God. Jesus said in John 16, he said to his disciples, the Father himself loves you. 
according to 1 John 1, verse 3, the Father has fellowship with the Son. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That is the blessing of adoption, spiritual adoption. Fellowship with God and His Son. Paul repeatedly pointed out the privileges associated with adoption. We read it in Romans 8 earlier this morning. We've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we call out Dada. It's a, it's a child's endearing way of, of speaking to his father when, he, when desperately he's in need. When he cries out when something is, is, is a sense of great need and he's a sense of urgency. He cries out, Dada, Daddy. That's the privilege we enjoy, knowing that he's the one that we can turn to. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and since we are children, we are heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And somehow in our singing, we didn't get the right cue, and so we missed singing this song, but I've got the words in the back of one of your inserts in your bulletin. Charles Wesley thought about this concept of being adopted, and he's trying to express how grateful and amazed he is, how overcome by a sense of wonder and astonishment. And so he writes these words. Where shall my wondering soul begin? How shall I all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death and sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire. How shall I equal triumphs raise and sing my great deliverer's praise? Oh, how shall I the goodness tell, Father, which you have shown that I, a child of wrath and hell, I should be called a child of God, should know, should feel my sins forgiven, blessed with such a foretaste of heaven. Do you have a sense of that reality in your heart and life? Do you know your sins fully, completely forgiven in Christ as a gift, not something you've earned, not something you deserve? But do you know even more so than that? Do you understand the wonders of the love that God has for you as an adopted child of God? Being able to call him, Daddy, when any time you need him, to cry out to him. It ought to cause our hearts to overflow in amazement, wonder, and astonishment. And I hope it does in your heart and life. Secondly, in this point I'm going to abbreviate quite extensively. I'm just going to give you the answers for most of what is listed under point number two. What are some of the blessings of spiritual adoption? Again, I would commend to you the reading of the book, Knowing God, and the chapter on sons of God. But one thing we could say, there are many elements to the answer, if you answer it comprehensively, of the blessings that are associated with spiritual adoption. Number one is we have a new identity. I don't have time to unpack that, but we go from being a child of disobedience, a child of wrath, to being a child of God. Secondly, we have a new relationship. So that the whole idea is that as spiritual adoption, we are now children, and therefore we have this kind of filial family relationship uh, with God. And there's a wonderful quote there in which he says that closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of this new relationship that we share with God. I'm not sure how many of us as Christians really enjoy that level. Do you view God and your relationship with God as characterized by closeness, affection, and generosity? If not, I would urge you to really think through this whole concept of being adopted by God through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we also receive the blessing of a new hope-filled destiny. And the whole idea of knowing that someday we'll be with God, with Him, in His home someday. And then uh, there's another 
blessing, the new inheritance he talks about in the scriptures that is not going to be per- it won't perish away, it won't be robbed and taken from us. And we've gone from being paupers to being what? One who enjoys the wealth of our Father. The Father's wealth is immeasurable and we are to inherit the entire estate. So I'm not going to get into explaining any more of that, but uh, also another blessing is new empowerment. New empowerment, where the spirit of adoption actually comes and changes us on the inside. Now that brings me to my last blessing under point number two, and this is where I want to expand a little bit. For our purposes this morning, I want us to think about the idea of the blessing of gaining a new family. Gaining a new family. That is one of the blessings of spiritual adoption. And I want you to turn in your Bible at this point to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, page 1412. This is a fascinating text because what Paul is going to say is he's saying to Timothy, a younger pastor who's in charge of a church there in Ephesus, and he's saying, listen, I want to give you some advice. I'm an older pastor, a missionary. I've, I've known a lot. I've been, down the, I've been, I've been uh, in ministry a number of years. And here's some very important advice. You've got to realize when you deal with people in the context of a local church, you've got to know there's a right way to deal with them as a younger pastor. So he says this, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. And to the younger men, appeal to them as brothers. To an older woman, you appeal to them as mothers. And the younger women, you appeal to them as sisters. And notice what he says, in all purity. He compares the way that Timothy was to relate to other members of the church. Think of it as a family situation. What is appropriate in your family dynamics and how you relate to those people, that's the way you should be dealing with other people within the local church. And that's not surprising that Paul would have that kind of advice. Because he described the church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, as the household or the family of God. So it makes sense that you would deal with people in the church as part of your family. Now, some of you, I need to back up and just say, maybe it's a bad assumption to make that you're going to deal with people in the church the way you deal with your family, if the way you deal with your family is inappropriate. He's making a basic assumption that there's something about a family dynamic, a healthy, vital, loving, respectful family dynamic of relationship, which unfortunately is not as widespread as it needs to be, He's saying that should be somehow lived out in the context of the local church. The response to the question is, when Jesus was asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 49, he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I value and cherish my human relationships, the bonds I have with my earthly mother and with my siblings, my brother, stepbrothers and stepsisters, which he did have some. But he's saying here, I value as a more significant relationship an eternal bond with those who are also following the will of his father. And so as we interact with each other as followers of Christ and members of this church, we are to do so with the understanding that we are family. I can just hear the tune. We are family. I mean, you can hear that, right? We're family. 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we share the same spiritual dynamic and privileges of having God our Father. If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we share the same Heavenly Father. So much so, our ties are therefore not casual acquaintances. We are forever family. Now to some of you, that's very significant. Some of you have gone through the anguish and the pain and the reality that the family you always long for is fragmented. There is divorce that has ripped apart the things that God intended to stay together. There are those of you who understand the, the, the sadness and longings of someone who's died and they're no longer around, or somebody that moved away, or somebody who just said, I don't want anything more to do with you, and they have no contact with you. You know that anguish. I'm telling you, in the family of God, it is a forever family, and that we, therefore, no matter how fragmented or how fractured your human, earthly, biological family may be or may have been, every believer who is united to Christ is also united to their fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ forever. Some of you looking for a family, you will find it, God willing, within the context of a gospel-centered church where that is celebrated, the fact that we have together this bond of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are a number of implications here. I want to run through those quickly with our limited time uh, before us this morning. Number three, on your outline, what are some practical implications of spiritual adoption? Now, how many of you have younger siblings that were born after you were born in your biological family or whatever family you're raised in? Many of us. Okay. Well, in our biological families, when, respective, when our respective mothers conceived and announced that she was giving birth in the near future, when that child came, we as the older siblings, we were not given a choice as to whether or not we would accept this additional member of the family. Were we? You were told, here is your younger brother. Here is your little sister, Johnny. Isn't he wonderful? Of course, we said, yeah, it's okay, you know. I had a little sister who's six years younger than I am, and I was so much older that she didn't mess with my stuff for quite a long time. So I didn't mind her being around for a good number of years. So the point was this. When you see a newly added member of the family, we're not given the opportunity to say, no, nah, I don't think so. I think another family ought to have that one. I think things are good. We have a good, complete family right here. No, you're not given that option. If God ordains a new sibling be added to your family, we are expected to open up our hearts. We're expected to open up our arms, in a sense, and welcome that little tyke into the family. Now, in spiritual adoption, hear me out now. God chooses those whom he will adopt. And he adds his children to his family, according to his own sovereign plan and will. And the gospel then compels us to open our arms and open our hearts and to say what? I accept you. I welcome you as a gift. Welcome to our family. You say, well, that sounds nice, but do you got anything to back that up in Scripture? Yes, Romans 15.7. Romans 15.7, Paul writes, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. 
It is the same word that's found, the idea of accepting. It's the same word that Paul used when he addressed a slave owner named Philemon. And he talked about the concern he had with a runaway slave named Onesimus, who may have likely stolen from the owner, ran away. Paul runs into this guy named Onesimus in prison somewhere far away, leads him to Christ. This guy repents, says, oh man, I've done wrong. I need to go back and make it right with my master. So Paul's writing a letter back to this guy over here and saying, listen, welcome him back. Accept him as a part of the gospel. He's a part of your forever family now. You cannot push him away. You cannot somehow ignore him and eliminate him from your life. You must accept him just as God has accepted you. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are sharing together a common gospel that says that we are established in familial, forever familial bonds in Christ. And although we may have differing backgrounds, we may have differing personalities, differing preferences, and according there in Romans, uh, the chapters that Paul's talking about in 13, 14 to 15, he says we have different degrees of sensitivity regarding uh, our conscience and what we feel comfortable doing and not doing. Regardless of all that, he says, we are to aim at being of one accord and with one voice glorifying God our, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our core commitment should be. We join together, we glorify God as people who are saved by grace, and we share together these common bonds in the family of God. I found it interesting this week when I learned this point. The term Christian, when someone calls you a Christian, we read about in the book of Acts, when it first was given to us as a title to someone, say, oh, these people are Christians. That was a term used of Jesus' followers by people who were not Jesus' followers. Means person similar to or followers of Christ. But did you realize that when fellow believers refer to each other in Scripture, do you know what term they use? In Greek, it's the word adelphoi, which literally means brethren, which can mean brothers plural, or in the context of which it's used, it also has the concept of what? Brothers and sisters. Family of God, brethren, that's who we are in Christ. Now I must say, one of the great opportunities in a church is to celebrate spiritual adoption. We can celebrate in our minds, but there's another thing when it comes to our attitudes and how we live that out. And I would suggest to you that if we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ, Philippians 2 challenges us. We need to be of the same mind the same attitude. We must maintain the same love, be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All of us have a tendency to regard each other as less important than ourselves. And what happens if you're in a biological family or an adoptive family, an earthly family, in which you have someone in the family who's all about themselves? I hate to break it to you, but that's a nightmare. I think some of you know what I mean. They don't consider other people around them. It's all about themselves. It goes against the whole concept of what a family is about. What God intended. And so we are inclined, unfortunately, to look out for our own interests. That's our basic nature. And he says in, in the gospel, we ought to be, therefore, more interested in our brothers and sisters. The gospel calls us again and again to humble ourselves, to adopt Jesus' attitude. Because Jesus gave up his rights. He gave up his privileges in order to rescue sinners like you and me. So that instead of grumbling and complaining about what isn't working for us, 
And instead of, uh, of competing and trying to get a little up on the next guy over there and get the privileges that we think he's, unfortunately, he gets, and we're fighting with him about that, it's not fair, and all this stuff, instead of doing that, we're to what? Humbly serve each other. And Paul says, if you will do that, he says, that's going to make a huge impact in the world in which we live where everybody's looking out for number one. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. As children of God, we are privileged to live a life in which we aim to be above reproach in the midst of what? A perverse and crooked generation among whom we shine like lights in the world. If the church can model a family that's doesn't, it's not perfect. We have all our foils, foibles and faults and sins. And we, yes, we don't live it out perfectly. But if they see a real sense of we are forgiving and gracious toward one another and we're on the same page and agree that we're trying to follow the same pattern of Christ and we're trying to live that out, that's going to make a huge impact in our world. We as a church, we believe that's one of the greatest ways we can be a witness. And since God adopts every one of us, Every one of his children on the basis of grace. He calls us to imitate our Father and to deal with each other on the basis of grace. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and you'll read very clearly that God in Christ has forgiven us. And Paul says, therefore, in light of the fact that God in Christ forgives you, not because you deserve it, but because he chooses to show you grace and chooses to put your sins on Christ. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Not so that you might become children, but because that's who you are. You're imitating your father. So he says, okay, as your father, then walk or live in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. I find it interesting that Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he gets in the same issue about how we are willing to forgive each other and how we deal with sin in our brothers and sisters in the family of God. And he warns against the tendency that we've what? that we have a tendency to focus on the speck that's in the eye of our brother and sister. Oh, look at that. Oh, my goodness, look at this. You've got to deal with this. You've got a problem over here. Look at that, man. And so we focus on the problem in that person. Meanwhile, Jesus says, you don't realize it, but you've got a telephone pole in your own eye, telephone pole of your own sin. That is, you have a major sin issue in your own life, and you're trying to help someone get the speck out of their eye? Forget it. Every true believer has been welcomed and wanted by God. Therefore, we are to welcome and want those around us to enjoy the same grace that we deserve. Years ago, or not too long ago, saw this video that's viral. I don't know if you've seen it, but it has this little kid. He's from somewhere in Britain somewhere. He has an English accent. And he proceeds to take his younger sibling, his brother, whose name is Charlie, and he proceeds to put his finger into Charlie's mouth. I guess he's teething or something. Maybe you've seen this. So he puts his finger in there, and the, the kid, his brother, obviously starts chomping down on his finger a little bit. And so he goes, Charlie, Charlie, you're biting my finger. You're biting my finger, Charlie. And I think to myself, get your finger out of his mouth, and he won't bite it. You know, I mean, come on. It's pretty obvious. And that's oftentimes what we're like, isn't it? We're doing things, we're acting in ways in which we offend our brothers and sisters, and meanwhile, all we can do is find fault with them. All we see is their faults magnified, their sins magnified. Meanwhile, we are completely blind to our own. And so Jesus here again helps us to see what? Get that little, get that log pole out of your own eye. 
so that you can help your brother with their sins and so you can extend grace to them. And we are adopted by God. We're to open our hearts and our lives to our fellow fallen, imperfect, annoying family members. Isn't that the truth? I'll say it again. We're to open our hearts and lives. If we're adopted by God, we open our hearts and lives to our fellow fallen, imperfect, annoying family members. Because that's what families do. Why? Because that's what our Father puts up with. He loves them, and He's committed to them, and He's the one that's made us a family. May I suggest to you that the same grace that we have been extended to us is the same grace that we are to extend to others. And we need to keep on forgiving those sins. If they come and repent and say, I'm asking for forgiveness, 70 times 7, you just keep doing it. You keep forgiving. You show that kind of love that forbears, the kind of love that continues and doesn't give up on people. A love that does not become hardened in our hearts and say, I'm cutting you off, I can't deal with you anymore. It's a love that says, I'm willing to forgive as you come and repent and acknowledge the wrongdoing. There's one other thing I want to touch on real quickly here. I don't have time to expand it further, but the implication of if we really understand the family dynamic among fellow believers, we are to share our resources with each other if there truly is need. Now, the texts of Scripture are so clear on this. Paul insisted that if anyone does not provide for his own family, he's talking now about biological family or literal human family, if, if, if anyone does not provide for his own family, and especially for his own household, that is, his immediate people he lives with, he, is wor- he has denied the faith, he is worse than an unbeliever. So if we don't offer ourselves, if we have the financial means to help take care of the people that we're related to, he says, you're acting like an unbeliever. Like you, don't even have, you don't have any care or concern for them at all. You're not living out the gospel. But interestingly enough, 1 John chapter 3, and then I'm going to quit with this. So let's look at 1448. Turn with this one, if you will. 1 John chapter 3. Notice the key word in this text where John uses the word brother. Okay, brethren. Here we go. He's talking about the family of God. He says in verse, chapter 3, verse 16, page 1448, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to what? Lay down our lives for whom? For the brethren, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lay down your life. What are you talking about? Well, let's get more specific, he says. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. He's saying love has to be tangible. Love has to be something that is expressed in a practical way. You don't just say, oh, I hope God will bless you in your need. You get involved in meeting that need. And I'm thankful that we as a church, we are doing that on different levels. There are people who do serve others by helping them around the house. There are others who help to fix their cars. There are others who are donating of their own blessing of God into our benevolent fund, and that is serving as a way of helping those who come with uh, financial needs as, as, as would occur. And there are many ways in which we can do that on an ongoing basis. And as we do so, my friends, what are we saying? We're saying that God has shown those of us who were paupers all the wealth of his estate. And out of that wealth, because we realize that he owns everything, I share what I have with my brother and sister in need. 
And I do so not begrudgingly, not, not because I, I feel like I have to, it's because I want to, because they are a part of me. We're a part of the family of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, how we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that through Christ, we who were your enemies, that we are blessed to be able to call you our Father, to call you Daddy, to cry out when we're in need. How we thank you that we can enjoy unbelievable blessings because of what Christ has provided to us in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to enter into the joy, help us to enter into relating to you on the basis of this generosity, this, this, this uh, benevolence, this tenderness, this caring love that you have for us. Lord, those of us who view you as a stern taskmaster, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see you as truly a loving father who is tender toward your children. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who is cannot really say they know and understand what that means, I pray that even this day, Lord, that they would search the scriptures, that they would begin to examine their hearts, and not to be presumptuous, but to come humbly before you, desiring to be included in the family of God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to think through the implications of being those who love each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. We have many ways to improve that, Lord, but we thank you for what we see of that already as an evidence of your Spirit's work, the Spirit of adoption. And so, Lord, be glorified among us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to honor you. You are the one who has adopted us. We want to live our lives to please you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to have our final song, which is going to be sort of sung for us. And it's a reminder that with God, there are no orphans. Those whom he has adopted, they will never be orphaned. He will love them. He will take care of them. He will minister to them. Come and minister in song, please. Thank you.